her as an example. Who is Solange? What happened to her? Nothing! To the Cinematic Void podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is. Hey, what's going on? It's Nick Vance, Paranoid Futures on social media. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all major podcast platforms. If you want to support The Void, you can consider joining our Patreon. Not only do you get cool perks, but you make this podcast as well as the Cinematinous movie possible. All right, Jim, so what are we getting into today? Well, it's January, which can only mean one thing. That's right, it's January Giallo here for Cinematic Void. We're doing episodes on the podcast. We have a multi-city screening series for January Giallo this year, as well as a virtual episode of the Cinematist movie. But what we're going to get into today is we're going to focus on, I think, one of my favorite Giallo filmmakers. He probably wasn't as prolific as a lot of them, but like at least two of these Two of the three movies we're discussing today are, I think, are solid, certified bangers. One of them, I will promise you, is definitely a top five Giallo ever made. We are talking about Massimo D'Alemano, and if you're not familiar with him, he started out as a cinematographer, most famously lensing two films in Sergio Leone's Dollars Trilogy, Fistful of Dollars and For a Few Dollars More. But then he eventually pivoted over to directing, where he made a mix of like sexploitation movies, Eurocrime, and of course Giallos, which is why we're talking about him. And today we're talking about the three Gialli he directed, with the mention of a fourth one he was supposed to make. Just, just a little mention. We're just going to focus on the three he actually did direct so why don't we take a quick commercial break here before we slip on those black gloves and get ready for january giallo on the cinematic void podcast hail fellow gentlemen of the road oh, oh god look what's turned oh. up my apologies madam i am happy to report that lady luck has smiled on me today i hope it's a bottle of scotch not simply scotch my lancastrian friend a mingling with the finest malts from the house of justerini and brooks the names of no less than eight illustrious monarchs grace the label oh, oh a fine blend ah yes favorite. i might even shoot down to the country for the weekend do a spot of poaching international elevators are up uh, you should take the times, you know. Much better coverage. I say, Bertie, what's your golf handicap? No clubs, old boy. Mustache. Appointment with my tailor. J and B rare. The Scotch with a touch of glass. Welcome back. We are talking about the Giallo films from director Massimo Dalmano here on the Cinematic Void podcast as part of our January Giallo 2022 celebration. Up first is his first Giallo he directed. This came in 1968. It is a Italian West German co-production. It is called 
a black veil for Lisa, a.k.a. Death Has No Sex. Which is, I guess, kind of an obvious title. Unless you're a necrophiliac, then death does have sex. Or whatever. Maybe I'm thinking too much of this. Anyway, the film stars death, John Mills. Death gets oh, no. a lot of sex. Death gets a lot of sex. <laughs> you know who fucks? Death. Death fucks. Right. <laughs> oh, man. Are we off to a glowing start here on January Giallo? Death fucks. Anyway, the film stars John Mills, who is in the Swiss Family Robinson, Luciana Paluzzi from Thunderball, the James Bond movie, Robert Hoffman from Naked Girl Murdered in the Park, and Death Carries a Cane, as well as Umberto Lindsay's Spasmo, which we talked about on last year's January Giallo episodes. It was written by Dalamano, Vittorino Petrilli, who wrote The Great Silence, Audrey Nora, who all, who only wrote two screenplays, and Giuseppe Bell, who this is the only credited screenplay by. Music was by Giovanni Fusco, who did a bunch of Antonioni movies, but it was rescored in the U.S. by Richard Markowitz, who did music for various episodes of Murder, She Wrote, which I've been on record as saying is very Gialli-like. And... A show I really enjoy. Cinematography was by Angela Lottie, who did a bunch of sword and sandal films, as well as Jess Franco's Venus and Furs. This was the first of Dalamano's three Gialli, which also shares several themes and tropes. Although not as forthright as the next two, there's a lot of psychosexual aspects to this film and a very heavy presence of police, which carries through all three films as well. For those you haven't seen, here's a little plot just to give you some deets. When a narcotics detective finds out that his beautiful wife, who is also an ex-criminal, is cheating on him, he hires a professional hitman to bump her off. However, things don't go quite according to plan. Instead of killing the woman, the hitman ends up sleeping with her, and they begin an affair. Ooh, salacious. This was a first-time watch for me, and I actually quite enjoyed it. What did you think about it, Nick? I thought it was pretty cool. Um, it's, you know, it's a little different. You know, This being, like, I guess, on the early side of Giallo territory, mm-hmm. you know, it... it it's closer to like that creamy like crime like thing than than the more you know it just doesn't get weird like a like a like what i think of when i think of giallo it's definitely and it might have to do a little bit with the um being a west german co-production with italy but it definitely kind of leans more towards like traditional film noir you know hitchcockian in tone and you know as you said it harkens back to the german creamy cycle which were basically those were the Films that kind of inspire the giallos that follow, you know, based on murder mysteries, thrillers, that kind of stuff. Lots of Agatha Christie and Edgar Wallace in the roots of the creamy films. As you already stated, the film was released in 1968, which is still pretty early in its cycle because it predates um, Bird with Crystal Plumage. You know, granted, Mario Baba did Blood Black Lace, which had a black glove killer with a straight razor. But it's really Bird that kind of like kicked off the big trend that ran for a couple years in Italy. So it kind of makes sense that this is more like closer to creamy film noir, that kind of stuff. When you think about it, the film noir aspects are right there in the plot. You have a hitman who has to do one last job, gets a little sloppy, leaves a piece of evidence behind. You have a detective who's overly paranoid about his ex-criminal wife fucking around on him. And, you know, he finds a little piece of evidence, figures out, hey, I know who this belongs to. So instead of arresting the hitman, he's like, you know what? I want you to kill my wife. It's, you know, I I don't I can't think of the exact film noir that uses that plot, but there's definitely been variations of that kind of double cross, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of a little double indemnity in a way. Except usually it's like the 
femme fatale that hires someone to kill their husband as opposed to a cop hiring a hitman to kill his wife kind of thing. But the kind of interesting thing about this, and this is something I liked about it, that there comes a point after he sets up this deal for this hitman to kill his wife, the John Mills's character, he starts to think maybe his wife isn't actually cheating on him. And then like kind of has second or kind of has buyer's remorse as it were. And he's like, uh, Hey, can we just call this up? And the hitman was like, nah, dog, uh, we're not calling this off. And guess what? I'm fucking your wife. So now she is having a fair, even though she may or may not have been having one anyway. But then come after the hitman and the inspector's wife kind of hook up and some of the cronies for his boss kind of show up and pay him a visit and be like, Hey, you know what? You should stop fucking that cop's wife. And he's like, why? And they're like, just do it. And he's like, no. And then they kick the shit out of him. And it's at that point, he decides like, you know what? Me and the cop's wife are going to run off. And, you know, he goes, meets up with the detective, fucking shanks the detective, thinks everything is like going as planned, gets back to his crib. She's gone and the cops show up. So then he runs his ass out in the woods trying to get away, only get gunned down. And then comes a nice little twist here. And that twist is that the cop's wife was indeed cheating on him with the mob boss that was the employer of the hitman. And the reason why the hitman got whacked was because he was fucking the mob boss's side piece. Again, this is very film noir in structure, like a lot of twists, a lot of turns. Like, like I said, I really enjoyed this movie quite a bit. Again, it's not very, I guess on a scale of like, when you think Giallo, it's probably on the lower end of the spectrum, but I think there's enough there to say that it has the elements couple of quick notes here before we move on from a black veil for lisa according to troy howarth's indispensable so deadly so perverse volume one book lisa might be the first jally to feature a bottle of the iconic and beloved prop product placement whatever you want to call it j and b whiskey because john mills character is pound the shit out of it once he's like thinking his wife is cheating on him and the second thing is that the title it's pretty accurate. Lisa does indeed wear a black veil in the movie, which kind of bookends the movie because it's at the beginning. It's at the end. Now, the version that we both ended up watching was the U.S. cut, which was put out on Blu-ray by Olive Films. It definitely, even in the marketing of this Blu-ray, it's sold as a film noir. Like it look, has nothing but black and white images on the cover. Like if you didn't know any better, you think you were buying like some film noir you never heard of until you look at the date and realize it's in color you know which is it was kind of a weird thing because like i didn't it wasn't like i was avoiding this movie but like I, when i saw the blu-ray it's like is it black and white it's kind of late for black and white in italy at the time but i guess, I guess they're trying to sell it to the film noir hound crowd for whatever reason but i think plot wise it's a fair selling point i don't know what you think about that yeah yeah like i said it it, it may even just lean a little too too on that side for me um, not that I, I, I did like it, but, uh, but yeah, it's just might be a little too noir or, and just not what I thought I was in for. Yeah, that's a fair point. There's a couple other difference between this and the Italian version. The U S cut is about 10 minutes shorter. It was rescored as we mentioned earlier with the composer who did a bunch of wonderful cues for murder. She wrote, God damn it. I love murder. She wrote. And it also includes a end credit theme called Melody de Lisa, which 
seems a little inappropriate in some ways for it's like you go through this whole process of double crossing and all that and then you have like like a hit single at the end like i don't know that 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 kind of like didn't do it for me but like overall like i enjoyed the movie and at, at some point i would like to track down a version of the italian cut just to see because i think they did a couple other things with it. i think they put it in a flashback structure that wasn't necessarily in the italian cut and i don't know i mean the flashbacks didn't bother me but again it kind of like leads more into the noir side which again looking at the blu-ray packaging and like everything we've discussed it definitely is selling a more film noir than giallo but you know overall i thought it was a tightly plotted lots of good twists and turns all of them are no like you know bullshit kind of thing no cheating so to speak all three of the main leads give terrific performances which you know helps sell all the action that happens so yeah really cool film obviously it doesn't get as art house sleazy as the next two films we're going to talk about but you know i think for a early pre-bird with a crystal plumage giallo pretty cool pretty cool but we're going to take a quick commercial break but we're going to turn more masman dalamano giallos here on the cinematic void podcast With men, Lisa played both ends against the middle, sometimes with wild results. <laughs> Starring John Mills as Intertel Inspector Bulock, engaged in a death struggle against a worldwide narcotics ring. European film favorite Robert Hoffman as Max, hired killer, hooked on Lisa, but ordered by her inspector. You surely know what kind of wife you've got. Glamorous Luciana Paluzzi, reaching screen stardom as Lisa, using her beauty like a weapon to entice and destroy. A tulip stand, a honky-tonk carnival, a gambling casino. Which one held the clue to one of the deadliest of crimes? Every man wants a Lisa. Fears a Lisa. What's the idea? I want you to uh, do something for me. Even with a killer in her room, Lisa makes it hard for men to keep their cool. We've been talking about the Giallo films of Massimo Dalamano here on the Cinematic Void podcast. Up next, what we're going to be talking about is, you know, something I consider and actually a lot of serious Giallo fans consider probably top five Giallo films ever made. And of course, we're talking about 1972's What Have You Done to Solange, a.k.a. Who's Next? aka the school that couldn't scream this is again a italian west german co-production and it stars the great fabio testi who is in revolver lucio fulci's contraband the heroin busters lots of great euro crime movies karen ball jacqueline foschberger both of those who were in a ton of german creamies which kind of again leads to that legacy 
Christina Golbo, who was in Living Dead at Manchester Morgue, The House That Screamed, as well as The Killer Must Kill Again. And in her film debut, I Spit on Your Graves, Camilla Keaton. This film was written by Dalmano and Bruno De Geronimo, who also wrote Puzzle as well as Flavia the Heretic, one of the best non-exploitation movies you'll ever see. It was beautifully lensed by legendary sleaze merchant Joe D'Amato, who did Beyond the Darkness, Manual America, countless others, including horror porn, Rod Nights of the Living Dead, Porno Holocaust, nothing but hits. And lastly, but certainly not least, this film features one of Ennio Morricone's greatest scores. Obviously, Ennio Morricone, one of the greatest film composers ever, and this is definitely top tier. This is the first of Dalamano's Schoolgirls in Peril trilogy that he didn't quite finish. We'll get into that a little bit later. And for those who haven't seen it, I'm going to give you a plot. Then I want you to pause this podcast, and then I want you to go and watch this fucking movie, then come back because, you know, it's I try. We obviously do a lot of spoilers here, and we're going to be spoiling here. And like, obviously, it's kind of hard to like. There's no statue of limitation on spoilers is like probably what two to five years, and this movie came out like early seventies. But I think you'll get more out of it if you've seen the movie, and then listen to the discussion but here's your little plot here in london a gym teacher played by testy is trying to have a love affair with one of his students who witnesses a murder while making out on a boat at first he becomes the prime suspect but after two more murders including the would-be lover it is clear he isn't the killer but he decides to team up with his estranged wife to investigate while doing so they discover everything is connected to a sex club and the mysterious missing student named solange again I've already said it. I'm going to say it again. Top five Gialli film ever made. I screened this back in 2018, part of January Gialli. I showed it with House of Psychotic Women. I really love this movie. There's a lot to talk about. I mean, there's a lot to unpack. Both this and Daughters dwell a lot in this subject matter. So again, lots of sexual neurosis, sexual assault, abortion, grooming, religion, voyeurism, morality, grief. All that is in this movie. And again, it's a lot to unpack. And I want to say, under a lesser director, all the elements that I just listed shouldn't work. Wouldn't work. You know what I mean? It would just be like unapologetic trash, be offensive, you know, that kind of stuff. But Dalamato threads this needle with all this stuff and creates a tight, uncompromising masterwork. It's artfully shot and directed. But with that said, it's still incredibly sleazy because after all, still a exploitation film and you know it's not going to back down from that it kind of sets a tone and um i think both of us rewatched this pretty recently correct yep you know let's talk about that opening like that really ethereal slow motion credits sequence where like you know you have that main morricone theme and the girls riding their bikes and all that stuff it's really sets a tone without saying anything but saying everything i think it's one of the best opening sequences to a giallo film unless you've seen one of the versions where they like cut in the alternate title like abruptly i think when i yeah when i screened it it was um the school that couldn't scream and you have like that beautiful marconi music and all of a sudden it's just a black fucking title card that says that the alternate title just jarringly breaks in it but if you get a chance to see the movie like uninterrupted it's i'd say like a really beautiful opening way to start off a really sleazy giallo (laughs) in a lot of ways those uh 
those different titles, different title cards, are those for were those for different regions in this case? Yeah, in different distributors trying to resell the movie different ways. Like it was released here as what what have they done to Solange? But it was also released on there's alternate alternate titles. And I found a trailer recently where it was released as like one of those cheerleader, like kind of crown international exploitation movies, like called the Rah Rah Girls. It's like the Rah Rah Girls, and like it's a go look it up online, like the Solange Rah Rah Girls trailer, because holy fucking shit, it is ridiculous. It sells it as like some like seventies like sex comedy romp, which this movie is nowhere close to. Meet the Rara Girls, faster than the cheerleaders, bigger than the pom pom girls. Get with the Rara Girls. From the top of their heads to the tip of their toes, when the whistle blows, everything goes. See the Rara Girls. They'll do anything for a score. Rated R. I couldn't imagine Crazy. seeing that. Yeah. And it, it's funnier because, like, if you haven't seen the movie, it does play it. And you look at the clips they use, it does look like one of those like 70s, like cheerleader exploitation movies. But if you've seen the movie and you're watching the trailer, it's like, holy fuck, I can't imagine someone going in and think they're going to see a sex comedy and then like getting Solange. That has to be like complete mind fuck or just destroying things while you're in the theater, throwing your popcorn at the screen kind of thing. It's ridiculous. This movie works in many layers, and basically, as the movie unfolds, it, you're literally peeling layers off of it. As you learn more, you discover more, you see more. It's a really, you know, effective way to do it, and it keeps the tension, keeps the mystery. You learn something. You got to pay attention. Like, it's not a movie where you can just kind of, like, not, you know, kind of, like, slack off during it's not like it's high art or anything but like if you're not paying attention you're gonna miss a clue and then because like it's one of the most perfectly set up giallos you know or thriller movies ever made you get that first giallo murder like they witness from the boat and like it's not particularly graphic on screen but the implied violence is really impactful i mean essentially the killer is taking a knife and stabbing a young girl in the vagina and like you don't see it like graphically, but it's enough. And then it just starts unfolding from there. You learn about Fabio Testi's kind of shitbag, you know, gym teacher, professor character. It's kind of fucked up because he's just like, hey, me and my wife are on the outs. I'm going to, you know, buy a fuck pad and take one of my students there. That's perfectly cool, right? Nah, not really, dude. So you already have your hero is incredibly flawed, but he also makes a good red herring because, or at least a red herring for the police because he seems like he's the perfect suspect for the murder. And, you know, you kind of get with his girlfriend or his, you know, student girl, whatever you want to call her. There's a little bit of shades of Argento there too, because like, the way she sees the murder and then starts remembering little facts because when she sees it, it's all in a flash. And this was a tactic Argento would do in like a lot of his giallos where someone sort of remember they've seen something, but they couldn't really remember what it is until it starts like coming back, like a delayed memory kind of thing. And she has that kind of stuff because then she's like, oh, it was a priest that it was someone dressed as a priest that does the killing. So then you got more layers and then you get the religious aspect put in there because i think the school that they're at is like a catholic school catholic high school private school something like that 
So Testy is basically the prime suspect because his alibi is a student that he's trying to fuck, which he's trying to weigh the options. What's worse, going to jail for being a suspected murderer or setting up an affair with a student? Quite a, a moral dilemma to have, I guess. But she does him a solid and basically goes and says, like, you know, covers for him. Like, she doesn't say, hey, I was on this boat making out with him and when I saw the killer. But, like, it was enough to get him not to be convicted. So then Testy's like, sweet, no one thinks I'm a murderer. Let's go to her fuck pad and hang out. Except the killer decides to go to the fuck pad first and kills his girlfriend. So you get more layers unraveling because... The girl only told a certain amount of people about the killer and all that kind of stuff. So how would the killer know to target her? Hmm. And her death is, you know, it might not be graphic, but it is pretty brutal. Cause like basically the killer like breaks in and like drowns her in the bathtub, you know? And it's like, it's really, he doesn't like Dalamano doesn't really hold back. You're basically witnessing like that whole thing. I don't want to say in real time because it's not a real murder, but like it feels very real. It feels very like mean and like it's a it's not just like a stylized kill. It's a personal kill, which is like a lot different than a lot of giallos where it's like, you know, very artistic or like stylized or whatever. I guess it is stylized in a way, but like this one, like all the murders in this movie kind of hit a little more like personal and as we talk about this, we'll see why. Now, the funny thing is, once they find Elizabeth, who was the student that Testy was trying to sleep with, they learn from her autopsy that he didn't actually sleep with her because she was a virgin. It's kind of a unexpected twist, just the way they set things up. So it's like, he's a shitbag, but he didn't seal the deal to be a full shitbag. And then what I consider... The biggest, boldest move of this movie, and a twist upon itself, is Fabio Testi and his wife, played by Karen Ball, get back together. Which is absolutely fucking insane to me. <laughs> because, think about it. I never really thought about that until like maybe the last few years after watching it. It's like, yeah, how does that work? Like, it... It's mind blowing. I don't know what you think about it. Yeah, same. The same. It's pretty fucking ballsy. <laughs> There's no other way to put it. It's just like yeah. for a little for a plot beat, it's like, yeah, my my underage girlfriend or almost of age girlfriend is dead. I guess me and my wife are getting back together. And then on top of that, they decide to be amateur sleuths and go try to figure out what's really going on with this thing. But it begins opening up more layers because you find out that Elizabeth was, and the other two girls that were murdered were all part of this group who had made confessions to a priest with a beard at their, you know, school church thing. But it turns out school church doesn't have a priest with a beard. So there's someone <laughs> going deep cover getting confessions from girls and then using that information to get against them. So that kind of neat twist. Basically Karen Ball's character, who's also a teacher at the school that except I think she teaches a real thing. Jim's not a real 
job. Sorry, Fabio Testi, but whatever. She and like the inspector kind of confront the rest of the girls in this group and, you know, learn some things about them. Learn about they gave the confession to this fake priest and kind of find out that all these girls were part of a secret kind of sex club. Which is kind of another twist. I don't think you if you've never seen the movie, you're not going to see that coming. So, again, layers. Then you have Testy, who goes finds one of the girl's associates, who's a photographer uh, who hung out with them and probably hooked up with them or some of them. You know what I mean? And when he goes to meet this guy, this is the first time you hear the namesake of the film actually uttered because he mentions Solange. And Testy is like, who the fuck is Solange? And the guy doesn't give him like a real good answer. Like he kind of like beats him up a little bit trying to get it out of him. But like now they have something or someone to look for that seems to be the key to all this. Now, Testy and Baal have to go figure out what happened to Solange because that's going to solve the crime. They find another connection with this older woman who was a maid of one of the schoolgirls that is part of this clique. You know, Testy goes to talk to her, but instead finds her dead with a scythe kind of stabbed in her vagina as well. More of the like sexual assault like kind of murdering stuff you know what i mean and he doesn't understand why but again there's layers and there's all these things that are tied together you know it's really well done because like every time something's revealed you have more questions than answers you get an answer but then you get like two or three more questions like why that happened it's really effectively done like just how it pastes and plays out and that kind of stuff we then get you know Bow and Testy are hanging out of the park, taking a little break, taking a little investigation break from, you know, kind of keeping rekindling their marriage that under normal human circumstances probably would never be rekindled and better. I mean, you look at that scene when they're in the park laying out, like discussing the crime and they're like just hanging out, looking at the sky, join the join the breeze. You know, there's some weird moments in this movie that, like, I I think out of context don't work. But when you watch the movie, perfectly acceptable. And while they're laying there, a young girl walks by them and Testy's character kind of makes a connection with her. And then she runs off and this nurse goes to catch her and the nurse utters the name Solange. And then it's like, okay, now you have a face to the name. And then this leads to one of the girls in that clique getting a call to go to the park. And the cops find out about it, so they set up this sting. They're like, we're going to find the priest with the the beard. And the girls go there, and they find Solange, who we were introduced like a scene or two back, riding around on a merry-go-round. And one of the girls walks up to her and is like, hey, Solange, where have you been? We haven't seen you in a while. Solange doesn't say shit. Perfectly mute, you know? So this girl and Solange walk off. The cops are trying to trail them, but then the cops like lose track and Solange and this girl get in the car with, you guessed it, the bearded priest. So the cops blew their sting. Typical. Typical, typical, typical. But then with this happening, the dean of the school, where Testy and Ball's characters work, reveals that he is the father of Solange which is kind of a stunner when you think about it. It's like, wait, what? So everything is really interconnected. 
and he's like i i you know basically she had a traumatic accident doesn't say what it is and now he's worried that she's kidnapped along with this other girl and it's a great bit of misdirection and you know more questions more layers and then you get the scene which is a really effective really dark scene where it's the kidnapped girl who's like tied up and you have Solange that's free to walk around and the bearded priest shows up because he wants a confession to find out what have they done to Solange so you get this flashback and this is where things turn really dark the girls are have met Solange and they invite her to one of their sex parties Solange gets pregnant and a combination of not wanting to have the baby and you know people finding out about the sex parties the girls take Solange to the former nanny or caretaker or whatever she was to go get essentially a back alley abortion with a hot needle inserted into her vagina which goes about as well as you would expect badly so the aftermath basically leaves Solange emotionally distraught puts her in a state of trapped as adolescence she like basically becomes mute just ceases being like a teenage girl she then disappears and the girls don't know what happened to her and although you probably have a good idea who the killer is by this point you get the reveal the reveal is that that professor that dean or whatever Solange's father is the bearded priest and he's the one killing all the girls and the reason why he started dressing up as this fake priest was so he could get the confessions to find out what happened to his daughter and once he does he murders the girls except for Elizabeth who he drowns the same way Solange was traumatized with sharp objects into their vagina and now that he's been caught he kind of has a moment pulls out a pre-written suicide note which I think if you kind of figure out that you're going to get called at some point might be good to have lying around pulls it out pulls a gun out of his desk shoots himself and that's then to him the police inspector shows up kind of gives a bit of exposition kind of recaps all the twists and turns and plot things about like you know solange the abortion you know basically why the dean professor did all this stuff and then you're left with a three shot of Fabio Testi's character, Ball's character, and Camille Keaton Solange all hanging out, and they're all in different states of disarray and like sadness and devastation and all that. And it just kind of ends on a really haunting note. Now, with that said, the movie doesn't take any real moral stance with any of this, which I think is interesting because I think if you try to make that movie today, you would have to pick a side. You know what I mean? Like, look at the discourse that's for any new movie now that even has anything that's like slightly not up to certain people's moral codes, you know? Mm -hmm. It firmly stands in this gray area. It doesn't judge. It doesn't tell you how to feel. It just presents the story as is, which is something I really like about it, which is also probably something very dangerous about this movie. You know, it doesn't moralize against the girls having sex and partying. But it doesn't shy away from the fact the girls weren't exactly innocent and everything that went down. It doesn't condone the professor's sexual assault and murdering spree. And he's clearly the bad guy. But it also allows for the fact he was a grieving father dealing with something he didn't know quite how to handle. It's like this was something that permanently changed his daughter forever. And it broke him mentally. Not saying he's right. 
not saying he's a good guy, but it's that gray area. It's like he was traumatized by this, too. It's the kind of movie that would never, ever be made today. I know I've seen Nicholas Reffin had suggested he wanted to produce a remake of it, but I don't really think you could make this movie the same way. I don't know what your thoughts are on it, Nick. Uh, I'm trying to think who would if if uh, reference producing it, who who would the director be? I mean, it, I'm assuming they would change certain things or whatever, but like there's a lot of nuance to this. Like there's a lot of like taboo subject, heavy, heavy, heavy shit going on that like it can't be just like some fucking like horror hipster hack taking this material. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's like. I, I mean, maybe Refn could do it himself, but like, I don't even know. And it's not a knock on him. I, I feel like this is a movie that's clearly of a place in time dealing with lots of things that can't really be made today. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It's like it's it's a masterpiece, but it's also, as I've already stated, super sleazy giallo, but it does it in a very nuanced way. And it also leaves things up to the viewer on how to feel, which, again, because it doesn't hold your hand and tell you how to morally feel about things. I mean, again, your hero is essentially trying to fuck one of his students. And when that goes to shit, he gets back with his wife. The villain is doing really horrible things to young girls, but. He's doing it because they put his daughter in a place that like changed her forever. So much gray area. Like it's just swimming in gray. Couple actually one last kind of quick hit here about this film. You know, it was shot silent MOS, which is per usual for Italian productions, but they had all the actors speak their lines in English, which allowed for it to be. You know, when they were doing looping, the process be more smooth and the English dialogue, the flow, you know, easier. And this was the tactic that, you know, a few Italian productions did when they had eyes on English speaking markets, because, you know, there was even now there's hesitation about people watching dub films as well as like subtitle films. So they wanted to give the impersonation that this was an English made movie. You know what I mean? or English-speaking made movie, either in the UK or the US. And when I watched it, it's like, you can't really tell. It, it doesn't feel like a lot of the cheaper giallos where they just kind of rush in and do, like, you can tell, like, one person speaking English and is dubbed pretty good, and the other person was clearly speaking another language, and they're just, like, trying to fit words in. You know what I mean? So, I don't know. Final thoughts on Solange, Nick? I really liked it, and I'm actually excited to watch it again. Yeah, it's, I mean, if I hadn't already shown it for January Giallo in L.A., I would probably show it again. I might do that at some point. Um, friends at Central Cinema in Knoxville are actually showing as a Ennio Marconi double feature with Who Saw or Die. So if you're in the Nashville area, go check out What Have You Done to Solange, one of the top five Giallos ever made. But, you know, I've already said my piece on how great I think this film is, and I think even though it is rough, you know, there's a lot of heavy stuff in it. It's a fantastic, phenomenal film. So if you love Giallo films and you haven't seen it yet, scratch this one off your bucket list. But we're going to take another quick commercial break. But when we return, more January Giallo here on the Cinematic Void Podcast. 
What have you done to Solange? Well, she killed him the same way as the others. Have you any clues, Inspector? This is the third murder in three weeks. Is it true, sir, that Rosania is having an affair with Colonel Pickles, He just isn't a killer, and far less a sex maniac. Those girls know what it's all about, for sure. Only 16 and surrounded by secret boyfriends, petty jealousies, orgies, and lesbian games. What have you done to Solange? Unbearable suspense that keeps you on the edge of an abyss of terror. Take a cult film odyssey into cinemadness with Cinematic Void. Based in Los Angeles, Cinematic Void is a film series that specializes in horror and exploitation films. Currently, we are hosting Cinematic Void Up All Night in the Cinemanus Movie, a monthly virtual screening series, as well as the Cinematic Void Podcast, where we dive deeper into the world of cult cinema. You can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what we do, you can support Cinematic Void by joining our Patreon. Until next time, See you in the void. Welcome back. We've been talking about the Giallo films of Massimo D'Alamano here on the Cinematic Void podcast. Up next, we are going to talk about his third and final Giallo film, which is What Have They Done to Your Daughters, a.k.a. The Co-Ed Murders. This film stars Giovanna Raleigh, Claudio Castanelli, who is in Suspicious Death of a Minor, which we talked about last year with Sergio Martino, Mario Dorf, who is in the, the Tin Drum, one of the great just art house movies ever made you've seen tin drum haven't you that's on the list man i've been meaning to check that one out definitely see tin drum and last but not least it also stars farley granger from strangers on a train and a movie i'm gonna be screening for this year's january giallo something creeping in the dark it was co-written by ittori sanzo who also wrote dalamano's cult 38 special squad your really kick-ass Euro crime movie as well as aldo lado's night train murders and lucio fulci's contraband it was shot by Franco Della Colli, who also lends another motorcycle killer giallo, Strip Nude for Your Killer. And it features music by Stelvo Cipronati, who is probably best known for his library cue that's used in pieces, as well as Mario Bava's Bay of Blood, Roberto Lindsay's Nightmare City, countless like Eurocrime, you know, giallo, you know, Jody Motto movies, tons of stuff. He's wrote banger score after banger score so if you haven't seen this movie and you haven't heard the soundtrack you're in for a fucking treat that's for goddamn sure for those you haven't seen here's a little plot police officers investigate the death of a 14 year old girl who's been found hanging after receiving an anonymous phone call after interrogating suspects and witnesses a tape is discovered where several sexual encounters were recorded on it this leads the police to an underage prostitution ring and a motorcycle riding serial killer. Now, we've been talking about the motorcycle killer. That was something you really liked about this movie, wasn't it, Nick? It, it is. Um, I, I just thought, it, I don't know, it's just really fucking cool looking. Uh, but I, however, I was thinking it would kind of be even cooler if he didn't ride a motorcycle. If he was just <laughs> cruising around in that fucking helmet killing people. Like, yes, hell yeah. I mean, the amount of actual motorcycle riding that he does in this movie, it's pretty limited. There's like two chases, so most of the movies just walk around dressed as that. I think you would also like strip news. There's even less motorcycle riding than there is in this movie. 
<laughs> not that I so. not that I hate motorcycle riding. I just I thought it was such a cool costume that it was like and just I don't know. I just think of Giallo's as being so weird that like if he was just running around in a motorcycle helmet, I wouldn't think anything. I wouldn't think that was weird. You know what I mean? I'm just <laughs> like, oh, it's just a fucking it's just a kick ass costume. Speaking of which, now that I've already recommended the strip new for your killer, there's actually a Giallo adjacent film that Warner Brothers put out called Night School that also has a motorcycle killer, or at least someone wearing a motorcycle helmet killing people, which I think you'll take quite a bit. We should have probably done it for the Giallo adjacent episode, but well, we always do a sequel at some point, but Night School's pretty kick ass as well. But back to this film, it has a, I consider a, very on-the-nose tagline for it. Just another suicide until the police discovered a bloody bathroom, a maniac with a cleaver, and a schoolgirl sex ring. That is probably the most perfect, on-the-nose, plot-descriptive tagline I've seen for a movie. It's kind of ridiculous if you think about it. This film is also the second of Dalamano's Schoolgirls in Peril trilogy that he never got to finish. We'll get into that at the end of this discussion here. You know, this movie's more of a mix of Eurocrime and Gialli because at the time that this was made and coming out, Giallos were kind of out of favor at the at Italy's box office. So, you know, Argento had big hit with Bird. He had a Bird with a Crystal Plumage, I should say. You had a ton of fucking Giallo films come out. And then because Italy tended to like get on a trend and fucking burn it to the ground. They did with Spaghetti Western, Sword and Sandal movies, Hercules movies, that kind of stuff. Like one movie would be a hit and then you would have like a hundred fucking movies coming out the next year. And they would just keep doing it until like, eh, don't care anymore. And they find the next trend. So the next trend was Eurocrime, which is shares some elements of Giallo films. Although Eurocrime movies are traditionally more like in line with things like the French Connection or Dirty Harry or even the Godfather, like the 70s American like kind of crime movies. There's been a few other Giallo Eurocrime hybrids, like things like Sergio Martinez's Suspicious Death of a Minor. And although it's definitely more Giallo than Eurocrime, you know, Black Belly the Tarantula is another good example of this because the very police procedural elements. And for this one, I feel like it kind of strikes the balance between both subgenres and does both of them really well within the film. You know, there there are segments of the you know, people that only consider this movie Eurocrime movie. And other people's like, no, it's definitely a Giallo. I think like it's Giallo enough to be a Giallo, it's Eurocrime enough to be a Eurocrime movie. Like split split right down the middle, so to speak. Now, this is not any way, shape, or form a direct sequel to Slange, although the title kind of gives that appearance, but it does tackle a lot of the same themes that Slange does, just slightly different manner, so to speak. Aesthetically Dalamato made some choices to separate these two films from one another. Whereas Solange is very lyrical and lush with its cinematography and camera work, Daughters is much more grittier and raw. You know, it definitely feels like more street level, if that makes sense. You know, the colors are really, the colors are muted. And in some ways, it, the film's ugly looking. And I don't mean ugly as in it's badly photographed. I mean, it's capturing the ugliness of the world that this movie takes place in and it does so perfectly. It's also very action oriented. You get a couple of pretty kick-ass motorcycle chases, which, you know, justify the guy wearing the motorcycle helmet. But, you know, I guess if you're going to have a motorcycle, <laughs> we're going to say, say nothing. It needs justification. 
No, but it the 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 two chases are really good in this movie. Like like I said, action is top notch in it. And plus, when that Cipriani score drops underneath those chases, you you got it cooking. This fucking movie starts cooking. Overall, the movie's much meaner than Solange is, and I would dare say very cynical. And like that's saying a lot because Solange is pretty bleak. Unlike Solange, this movie where Solange had some hope. And like that kind of things within like trying to solve the crime. This movie just has a feeling of hopeless hopelessness all the way through it. And it it pays off that it's that hopeless. And a lot of it has to do with the subject matter and just like, you know, dealing with like sex crimes. You know, I don't know if you ever watch Law and Order SVU or any of that shit. Have you? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Every time I I stay the night in a hotel. Just it's just the go to, you know? Yeah, because like when you look at those shows, you you kind of see if you watch a lot of episodes like I haven't watched in a few years. But when I used to have cable and like, again, traveling or whatever, I'd watch a lot of SVU and you would see the toll that working sex crimes would take on like those cops or whatever. And you get that feeling in this movie that everyone's kind of worn down. And with this new crime, like the underage prostitution ring, it just seems like it's the cops in this movie seem kind of almost broken anyway but now they're just like they're in the fucking dirge of this shit you know i mean it just it opens with a fucking young girl like found hanging and like the way it's presented is utterly devastating like the opening murder in Solange, it's not very graphic but like i think this just the way it's presented is just like matter of factly like bad shit happened and like mm-hmm. when the cops are like everyone comes in, everyone's fucking devastated when they find this girl hanging, especially when they find out that like she had had sex before. it. So it means the it's not a suicide. It becomes a sex crime. And you start getting like, you know, it's in a way it's like Solange because you get layers unraveling throughout the movie. But this one kind of does it different. And just like as the layers come off, it's just kind of more brutal as it goes on, like emotionally, so to speak. And there's a lot of scenes that just really, really just hit home, just like the opening. You know, there's the scene where the parents have to go and identify their daughter at the morgue and the way it's presented. They go up, they open like a, you know, some blinds to look through. They see their daughter and it's just like, it's fucking hard to watch. And it's not like the body's like mutilated or anything like that. It's just like, you kind of get the sadness. Like, you know, as much as the action's really fun and all that, this kind of shit is just, it's dark and it's like bleak. Like it's, you know, a lot of these Eurocrime movies kind of got cynical in a lot of ways, but like there's, again, that word hopelessness. It feels like there's no hope in this. Then the other thing that's just really, really kind of like, hammers home how just bleak and brutal things are is when they go and they listen to that recording of like the the sex recordings that they find and you basically get like older men definitely telling young girls do very very inappropriate things and getting rough about it and all that and like it doesn't pull any punches it's just again like Solange where it just presents it and your reaction is your reaction to it but it's just like man just brutal I mean, what are your thoughts on all that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it definitely the uh, the 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 sadness kind of just adds weight to the whole thing, and uh, and makes you care a little more. 
Yeah. I mean, where Solange unravels, you're like getting, you know, trying to solve the mystery for this one. It's like, as things unravel, it's still like, man, I just want to know less. <laughs> like, it's just like, it just, it takes you to a world that you really don't want to go into. And, and like, you know, I don't like trying to view movies through like a modern lens, but like, because of the topic of like under underage prostitution ring and rich assholes, like exploiting these women. I can't help but think of Jeffrey Epstein shades of Epstein. And as we're recording this, his, um, his number one, number one, homie Gaylene was just convicted today. Whatever that means, you know? Yeah. We'll never find out the truth, you know? No, even if they if they could lock her up forever, but 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 the general public will never really know the the all the the powerful people that that have been involved in this, you know. In a weird way, like there's maybe not intent. Well, obviously not intentionally because this movie's made in the seventies, and this all this happened like nineties through two thousand. Actually, probably in the eighties or whatever. But like, there's parallels, you know. It's like this is whatever this prostitution ring is. It's like big shit people, rich fucking just scumbags, you know, sleazy dudes, you know, and it just like, again, hopelessness. And the other thing, this movie is a little bit more different than Slodge is the portrayal of violence. I mean, both have brutal moments, but this one actually has a little bit of gore in it. And like, plus the biker dude has a hatchet and he fucking uses it. You definitely see a guy get his hand chopped off. There's a scene where he clunks a dude in the head with it and you get a blood spray coming out of the fucking top of his head. It's pretty grisly if you think about it. And like this is like, you know, effects hadn't been weren't really popping. Then they were just starting to pop, so to speak. Another thing, although it's not included in this movie, and I'm kind of thankful it isn't because I think it would just push the bleakness and that sort of, you know, feeling over the top is that for some reason, Dalamano shot some porn for this movie. And no one seems to know why it's there. I guess they found it with the reels, like, you know, the the footage. And I'm just going to take a guess that it, it might have been used for, like, you know, like maybe there was going to be a scene with, like, a stag film playing in the background. They wanted something that looked kind of real or something like that. Or someone finds a film and they see the negative and they see stuff like that. You know, the footage, which you can actually see on the Arrow Arrow Films release of the Blu-ray of this movie. They have it has a special feature, all the porn stuff. There's no audio or anything. You don't see anyone's face. You see like a lot of naked girls, a lot of old hard-ons, you know, keeping up with the <laughs> trend of the movie. Definitely some blowjobs, some whipped cream, that kind of stuff. None of it's like coherent trying to tell a story. It's just like it looks like, you know, either like loops that would pay, play at like a porn store or you know, in the back room or something like that. But they're really scuzzy. So they're definitely were in the tone of the movie. But it's like, again, it's like, did you need to really shoot porn for this dude? I mean, I, I guess maybe they shot it. They thought about using it. And then they're like, nah, we're not going to use it. Or they felt like it would probably hurt distribution if they included it in there or that kind of stuff. But like it exists. You can see it. I don't know how it would have fit in the movie. I mean, I could imagine, but like. As of now, I don't see where it was going to go. Now, we talked a lot about the Euro crime elements of this movie, the bleakness, but, you know, the Jalo elements are really, really great in this movie, too. Although I'd say they're handled a little bit different than they are in Solange. They definitely feel a little more raw 
and like more actiony, so to speak. There's the scene where the killer sneaks into the hospital room where he like, you know, busts in the door and gets in the girl in the hospital bed's face with a hatch. And it's like, tell me what happened kind of thing. But then there's also that big parking garage sequence, which a little bit similar to the one that Sergio Martino did in Strange Vice of Mrs. Ward, if you remember that. And, you know, I'm not trying to say Dalamato was barring whatever, because there's probably been plenty of movies that have had, you know, parking garage sequences. But the way he does it, it is a little similar, but like it's more of an extended version of that. Similar tone, but like kind of more to it, because like, you know, there's a big setup to it. There's a lot of cat and mouse staging. Giovanna Raleigh's performance as she's getting chased around by the motorcycle killer is just, you know, really terrific. I mean, overall, it's just a really executed sequence. And every time you think it's over with, it just keeps going and going. The film is just the same way. Dalamo directs the shit out of it. I feel like I've said Solange is the top five Giallo. And I think you can make a case that this movie could be in the top 10, at least top 15 as well. I think what's probably going to hold it back from some people's list is those Euro crime elements. But like, I think the, the Giallo portion of it is like a lot better than a lot of like Giallos that people like hold in high esteem. Like this movie's fucking good. You can't help but compare Solange and Daughters, mostly because of the titles, even though they're like two completely different movies that are unrelated, just tackling similar material. You get to the ending. Now, Solange has like, I wouldn't call it a happy ending, but you get a resolution ending where, you know, the crime is solved, but is anyone better for it? You know what I mean? And Daughters starts off with maybe a little bit more of a satisfying ending because you have the motorcycle killer get gunned down. Like, cool, we caught this guy. You know, we now know who's running this, you know, underage prostitution ring. It's all these rich assholes. We have all that stuff, but Dalmon doesn't end it there. Instead, you get a little police bureaucracy at the end where they talk about, we're going to go take out all these sleazeballs and stuff. And then at the end of the day, the head of the cops is like, nah, not going to do that. We're cool. You know, again, shades <laughs> of Epstein, like literally it's like, yeah, you caught that one person, but we're done. It stops here. And it just kind of just all that cynicism and hopelessness that's throughout that movie just really pays off in a big way. And you're just kind of left like, fuck, it's not really over. It's like they stopped a little bit of it, but like all those rich and powerful fucking terrible people still have power. Again, shades of this whole Epstein thing. Before we get into our final thoughts on this film and, you know, Dalamano in general, I do want to mention what was supposed to be the final chapter of his Schoolgirls in Peril trilogy, which is 1978's Red Rings of Fear, starring Fabio Testi, Christine Kaufman, and Jack Taylor. Now, Dalamano never even shot this movie because in 1976, he died in a tragic car accident. The script was done, but it had major alterations to it. I don't even know what his original script was was like or anything like that but when you watch the movie and you look on imdb besides dalamana there's like six or seven credited writers listed which is a lot which means a lot of people went around and dicked around on it one of which was franco freni who has been argento's longtime co-writer from basically phenomenal on including writing argento's new movie or wrote he wrote the new movie that argento just directed it's in post-production so long-standing relationship there you know they they made the film 
and there was a director on it. That director got fired and it was finished by a gentleman named Alberto Negrin, who was basically Italian TV director. And this was his feature length directorial debut, as well as his swan song. He never directed another feature length, you know, theatrical movie again after this. I kind of say like he finished it, but like there's reports from Jack Taylor said like they shot a bunch of shit for this movie, but it was never actually finished. And they just kind of slapped together what they had and kind of made a fucking movie out of it. And, you know, I've mentioned this before about like when you're working in such like sleazy and uncomfortable like elements under a lesser director, those things fall apart and the movie just kind of just teeters into like the trap, the real ultra trash end of the, you know, exploitation spectrum. That's kind of where this movie falls because without Dalamano's direction, it just doesn't work. It has a lot of the same elements, but they don't work. They don't work as well because it just like, it's just kind of slapdash together. So again, when we talked about like someone trying to re- remake Solange, I don't think you can do it because you got to be the right kind of director for it. You have to understand what that material is and how to like, weave in that gray area and this movie is absolute proof that when you can't do that you're making a fucking shit show train wreck and i don't necessarily dislike red rings of fear i think it's fine for like a you know enjoyable trash like euro crime movie but you know it doesn't it's not in the same class as slander daughters and it kind of really highlights how great of a director that Dalamato actually was what's your final thoughts on daughters nick Pretty good. It's no Solange, but uh, but pretty good nonetheless. And uh, I think we need more uh, motorcycle helmeted killers in films. I, I I agree with that. I think that definitely it needs to be a comeback of motorcycle helmet killers. You know, it's it seems like it's untapped material. Another one I'm thinking about Nightmare Beach that we talked about like last year for spring break. That's another motorcycle helmet killer. So there's a few out there, but Maybe someone will make some more, but I really enjoy this movie. I think it's top tier Euro crime and Giallo altogether. I think Dalamano in some ways is kind of criminally underrated as a director, you know, but you know, the fact he made Solange and Solange like definitely stands the test of time. Like when people talk about non Argento Giallos, this is always Solange is definitely one of the ones that always pops up. At least I think so. You know what I mean? We're going to take one last commercial break, but when we return, it will be read, watch, and listen here on the Cinemac Void Podcast. Let me take your, your panties off. All right. Walk around. Yes. Yes, like that. Come over here. Sit here. Who's this brutal? What a load of fuss for a few hours in bed. Fifteen or even less. Sure, I know I'm still a child, but I'd rather not have a kid every nine months. If she's a runaway, sir, it'll turn up if the parents reported it. We're still checking. This girl didn't commit suicide. She was killed. And I suggest you cooperate with us now. Oh, come on now, let's get this straight. Am I free or have I broken some law? Yes, you have broken some law. And no, you're not a free man. Inspector Silvestri! If the rules forbid me to say anything else or ask her anything else, how am I supposed to solve this case? How dare you say the case is resolved? It's-
It's not so. And you might at least have discussed it. I didn't want to involve you. And I suppose Pilate's statement will come from his coffin. He may have the kind of big names that we can't touch. He can't be touched without orders from the very highest authority. Never is what that means, as usual. Inspector, I think you still have a murderer to find. Our friend with the meat cleaver. Cut you into little pieces like I cut off your friend. Just tell me where to get him. Find one of the boys, I want to kill him with my bare hands. Which one of you is Juliana Beachy? Why? I'm Beachy. You'll have to come with us. What for, cop? You'll find out. Come on. Welcome back. It's now time for on the Cinematic Void podcast, where we talk about all the things we've been reading, watching, and or listening to. Nick, it's been a little bit. What have you been reading, watching, and or listening to? All right. So I've been reading this book by Alyssa Nutting called Tampa, which is uh, kind of a, well, it's a story about this woman who deliberately gets a job as a middle school teacher uh, because she wants to fuck middle school children. Uh, so that's a, that's the book I'm reading right now. <laughs> uh, seems, it's, it's fit, it's, seems fitting for the what we've been talking about today in some ways. Yeah, totally. Um, it, it's fiction. Uh, it's it's not a it's not a true account. It's not a real account. But uh, but you know there there are real accounts of such things. But uh, but yeah, pretty pretty interesting book so far. Uh, I'll let you know how that goes. Uh, also been reading The Legacy of World War II in European Art House Cinema by Sam Deegan. Uh, you know, it talks about Salo, talks about just everything, you know, Fassbender, Pasolini. And uh, I, I think it, it mostly centers on uh, directors who were alive uh, during World War II. So it's kind of, um, you know, how 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 the war affected them and and the way they made films watch i just saw eyes wide shut for the first time at the arrow Le- leon vitale was there did the intro uh very cool like i say it's my first time seeing it um and uh i i don't know i remember when it came out and it kind of got panned um and i just never checked it out but yeah it's it's fucking awesome it's fucking great it also has one of the best last lines of any movie ever Totally, <laughs> totally. It caught me off guard when it, at the end, it's just like holy shit. shit well, that was yeah. the end. All right, fucking a. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, I've been watching uh, Yellow Jackets on Showtime. Have you seen this? I have not seen this. Yeah, it's um, it's it's a teenage soccer team in the nineties, and on the on their way to the nationals, they get into a plane crash uh, in the middle of the woods in Canada, and it kind of flashes back between. Uh, when it happened and their lives now and uh it's it's fucking great it's it's like you know lost meets alive meets i don't know what the fuck it's a, it's a just a great like cool like mystery story i i love it so far it's like seven episodes in um and i i don't know i i started paying for showtime so i can watch it um it's it's i i highly recommend it i think it's fucking great 
Uh, and that led me to actually watch a live, which I haven't seen in a really long time, but, uh, it's a good movie. Maybe, maybe great movie, great story for sure. Really into, uh, plane crashes and cannibalism and things like that right now. Um, <clears throat> also just watched this is the end. Cause I just needed a comedy. I just been just watching too much artsy stuff and whatever. And I think it still holds up. It's pretty, at least the first half is like really fucking funny. And then the second half, I don't know, it kind of falls apart. But like, what are you going to do? I mean, fucking, I, don't, I only have so much patience for that, like <laughs> Seth Rogen fucking whatever type of comedy anyway. You know what I mean? But uh, but yeah, some good jokes in there. So it's, it's a fucking it's a fun fucking movie. Um, Just saw the uh, Midsummer director's cut, which I'd only seen the regular version. And the re- director's cut is like 16 hours long, more like three. But it's fucking amazing. <laughs> You know, um, yeah. Uh, and for listening, I've been listening to the Catherine Wheel Chrome demos lately. I love I love Chrome in general. Um, so hearing the demos is just a cool, different way to uh, to listen to that record. Good stuff. And then also a band called Daydream Nation um, and their record Bella Vendetta. That was members of a uh, Brian Jones Town Massacre. Um, and you can quote me on this. Daydream Nation is better than any Brian Jonestown Massacre record. Um, just cool, like shoegazy, a little Oasis, a little whatever it's from 2008 and kind of of that era, maybe a little too much of that era for some people, but I the, I think this record just kicks ass. So Daydream Nation, Bella Vendetta. Um, that's it for me, man. How about you? For Reed, I've been working on getting through, um, not really working, getting on, making it sound like it's a chore. It's actually been a pretty fun read so far is warped and faded by laura's nilson and friends edited by our friend kayla janice it's basically the history of um weird wednesdays at um alamo draft house and the kind of the formation of agfa the american genre film archive been digging that i've also been reading the hellboard guide to occult britain which is basically hellboard is kind of a uk like occult zine and they put together a little book that has like Basically, it breaks down all the all the places throughout the UK and like kind of marks where like, you know, there's like places of like pagan worship or were, you know, occult movies were shot at where like, you know, legendary like satanic stuff happened, that kind of stuff. It's a really cool book. It's kind of a, like a if you ever wanted to do an actual tour of England and see where all the occult spots are, that's this would be the guide for it, so to speak watch i haven't been watching a lot of stuff i've been just finished up the um season finale of curb your enthusiasm another banger season season larry david can do no wrong it's pretty it's pretty fucking funny uh i've also i guess made a drunk purchase at some point and got friday the 13th the series i don't know if you remember the series which has nothing to do with well in name it has to do with friday the 13th but like the series is about like basically People have like go and like collect haunted objects or something like that. It's a Canadian production. It's kind of like if you ever seen Are You Afraid of the Dark? It's like a more adult version of that in some ways. Uh, and since we just passed Christmas, I watched one Christmas or Christmas adjacent movie. I watched The Silent Partner with Elliot Gould. Phenomenal movie. Haven't watched it in years. And, you know, good times. It's also the first appearance of John Candy on film. It also stars Christopher Plummer in a, like a phenomenal villainous role. This was 
one of those Canadian tax shelter movies, sort of like how David Cronenberg got his movies made. Like it's very Hitchcockian thriller. There's lots of twists. You've seen the silent partner, haven't you, Nick? I, it's a banger. I love it. Yeah, it's it was an it was a nice Christmas watch uh, for listen. I just pretty much like I think. I guess like the day before Christmas, Christmas Eve, Nas dropped a new album, Magic. It's another collaboration with him and Hitboy. And holy fucking shit, this is probably the best one yet. Damn. Like, you know, King's Disease 1 and 2 were, you know, Nas kind of stepping back up. But now he's just, he's on a fucking roll and he's just not stopping. It's like nine songs, so it's kind of closer to like the Illmatic format. And I think Aesop Rocky and DJ Premier are on one song together. That's the, all the guests. And like, it's nothing but bangers. It's like, it had that, had that record came out a month before it'd probably be my number one record of the year. Holy shit. Like seriously, okay. I've, I've actually considered just like tanking my list so I could put this on there. Cause it's that fucking good. Like no joke. This is like, it's a great hip hop record. It's a fucking great Nas rep record. He's rapping his fucking ass off. Hit boy. I mean, there's a line in there in the, one of the songs. I think it's a song he does with Aesop Rocky where he's like, you know, me and hit boy are the new gang star. Shit. Like he's basically like, this is, this is my dude. This is who's produced me from here on out. And like, so far they delivered, but like, I guess this is supposed to be a teaser for King's disease three, but like Jesus Christ, this is better than King's disease one and two also listen to the new benny the butcher single mr pyrex man it's pretty cool i liked it a lot i assume benny's got a record coming out at some point either tana talk for some other release not sure which uh i also listened to the boldy james and the alchemist super tecmo bow which i guess was a surprise drop you actually sent it to me because i didn't even know it was coming i guess it's like I don't know what you would consider it. Is it like just an extended EP after the Bo Jackson record, which was also called an EP, even though it's like 40 minutes long? Yeah, I thought I thought they were both full lengths, so there you go. It, it seems like a full length. It's kind of different than the Bo Jackson record, but like, I I think I like Bo Jackson a little bit more, but I have had more time to like digest and listen to it. This, I've just been like kind of, you know, listening to it along with that Nas record. I've also been on a... I guess kind of straight edge hardcore just like weird metallic hardcore kick I listen to morning again as tradition dies slowly probably haven't listened to that record in 20 fucking years put it on yeah still rips and I, this is from discussions we've had i've never been a big cave-in fan but i put on until your heart stops and i finally get it i'm i mean i realize i'm like 30 years too late on this but like <laughs> it's so good yeah, it's it really is good, which also le leads me to the last thing that I've been listening to that I like more than like I, you know, care to admit because like I'm not big fans of either artists on their own, which is Converge and Chelsea Wolf. I like one Chelsea Wolf record, the one where she kind of like sounds like Jucifer or the Melvins or something like that. I forget what that record's called. I think that was pretty cool. The other stuff just hasn't really like it's fine or whatever, but it just hasn't grabbed me and converged like i don't dislike them but i'm not a huge converge fan and i don't you know i'm not going out of my way to listen to anything they're putting out but like for some reason i decided to try out this record and i i fucking genuinely loved it 
It's like it's a it mixes what both the both Chelsea Wolf and Converge do well together. There's like elements of like dare I say alt country thrown in there. There's obviously the metal aspect, the hardcore math aspect. There's like this is a good mix of stuff. Like it's it's an interesting record. And like I assume if this is called Blood Moon One, there's gonna be a Blood Moon Two. So I'm actually excited to hear if they do more. And yeah interesting collaboration that i would never think i would be into and end up loving so that wraps up this episode of the cinematic void podcast we'll be back later this month with more january giallo action and if you're in the los angeles area every monday at the los Feliz three i'll be hosting a screening of a giallo film for january giallo if you are in the chicago or knoxville tennessee area on wednesdays they will be doing their respective January Giallo screenings at the Music Box in Chicago, Central Cinema in Knoxville. And then if you're in the Boston, Massachusetts area, Brookline, Mass, the Coolidge Corner Theater, they're doing midnights on Saturdays for January Giallo. And on January 15th, I will actually be in person at the Coolidge Corner Theater introducing Roberto Lindsay's Orgasmo. So I'm really excited to be doing that. COVID be damned. Gotta, gotta make it through here, man. We'll try and we're trying. So hopefully I'm not going to eat my words by saying that and I'll actually be there. But until next time, see you in the void. void.